0: You're listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a podcast that explores stories inspired by the collections of the Lloyd Library and Museum, located in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. Lloyd Library is renowned as a resource for scientists and historians engaged in plant-related research. Scholars from greater Cincinnati, across the United States, and around the world, access the Lloyd's collection of books, papers, photographs, art, and artifacts as they engage in their studies. Today's guest, Dr. David Lentz, is a biologist and professor at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Lentz's interests in paleoethnobotany and paleoecology have taken him into numerous areas of North America to study indigenous groups, their land use practices, agriculture, and other uses of plants. In addition to his work at UC, last year he was a fellow at the Dumbarton Oaks Research Library in Washington, D.C., operated by Harvard University. Building on his experience there, he continues research for a book on ancient Mesoamerican agriculture. When Dr. Lentz visited Lloyd Library to conduct research for that project he expected to find a trove of useful resources. What he discovered was even more than he'd imagined. Well, welcome to Between the Leaves, Dr. David Lentz. We're so happy to have you join us, and we're just interested to hear more.
1: Thank you, Meg. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Ah, Just to set the stage, I wanted to learn a little bit more uh, and share with our listeners what countries today comprise Mesoamerica.
1: Mesoamerica is sort of part Central America, part Mexico, and the countries involved uh, in Mesoamerica, that includes Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and it goes down as far as El Salvador. I work mostly with the ancient Maya. Uh, I also work with the Olmec, which... Uh, in some ways, were the predecessors of the ancient Maya. Uh, also, there were people that the the audience would know as the Aztecs. They lived uh, further north and around Mexico City, and uh, and there were various other uh, groups of people like the Mixtec, uh, who who lived in this area prior to uh, the time when the Europeans arrived in the New World.
0: Okay. What was the period of flourishing of these cultures?
1: Yeah, the the great period of uh, cultural fluorescence was the... Uh, uh, it's called the Late Classic Period, and that began about A.D. 500, and it went until about A.D. 900. And then you have what is widely known as the Maya Collapse. Do you want to talk now about what caused the culture to collapse? Well... Uh, uh, just briefly, uh, my take on it uh, is that there were uh, tremendous droughts in the ninth century. And these droughts were brought on by a variety of reasons, which we can get to later. Uh, some which are just natural climatic fluctuations. And uh, it may be that the Maya and their activity brought on uh, the climate change that they suffered. Uh, But my take on it is that there were tremendous droughts in the ninth century, uh, and uh, their agriculture failed, their water systems failed, and also as part of that, uh, their water supplies became contaminated with mercury and blue-green algae. And uh, with all of these things coming together at once, uh, it caused Uh, a lot of the cities in the interior to be abandoned.
0: Well, let's kind of start with what types of food they were growing and
1: eating. The the Mesoamericans, basically the people of the New World, brought us lots of different kinds of foods that we can hardly imagine being without today. Uh, Of course, there was maize, we call it corn, but uh, corn has a variety of connotations throughout the world. But they had maize, they had um, beans, like black beans, kidney beans, things like that, navy beans. Uh, And they also had peppers and squashes. These were the main field crops. And they had a lot of other root crops that we're probably not as familiar with, things like manioc, sometimes we call that tapioca. Uh, It's becoming a more popular food here. A lot of times if if you look at bread, that's gluten-free, you'll see manioc flour in there. Uh, Manioc is a root crop, and it's uh, one of the most productive crops in the world, actually in terms of the amount of calories produced per acre. There were uh, sweet potatoes, uh, achiote, uh, which is a kind of arrowroot. There was another uh, good root crop called malanga, and it's very similar to taro. If you've ever been to Hawaii, they eat a lot of taro there, and they had lots of uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, tree fruits. Uh, For example, avocado, uh, which is a plant they developed, uh, cacao or chocolate. They had many kinds of palms, like uh, the corozo palm, the uh, uh, coyole, and they also produced things like uh, cotton and tobacco. And uh, it's unusual, uh, but the, uh, the Maya grew cotton as a shrub, and that's its sort of natural habit, to grow as a shrub. Somehow we've turned it into an annual crop. But the Maya grew it as a, as a small tree, and that's its natural uh, habit, and this is how they survived. They didn't have a lot of animals. Uh, their only domesticated animals were uh, uh, turkeys, ducks, and dogs. So they were they were limited in terms of the kinds of animals they had, but they made up for it by having a wide variety of fruits and uh, field crops that they could use. And uh, just sort of parenthetically, uh, if you eat beans and squash together on a regular basis, you get all the essential amino acids, so you don't really need to have a lot of meat To go with that diet,
0: it sounds like they had a well-developed agriculture.
1: Oh, absolutely, they did, and uh, that agriculture developed through time. Uh, When the Maya first came or arrived in uh, Central America, they were mostly uh, practicing agriculture from what we call swidden agriculture or slash and burn. And it's a relatively simple kind of agriculture, where you go in and you cut down uh, a swath of forest, and and then you burn it, and then you plant your crops in the ash. The soils in Central America are typically very thin, so you can get about maybe uh, two, maybe three years out of this kind of uh, agricultural approach. But after that, then the the yields decline, and then what you have to do is move on, go to another piece of forest, cut that down, burn it, and then you can grow, uh, get a couple more years. And uh, so this is uh, very cyclical. And it takes about 20 years for that, that forest to come back so that you can uh, cut it and burn it again. So uh, it's it's kind of a simple kind of agriculture, but it's it's not very efficient in its use of land. And uh, in the end, it wasn't really enough to support the Maya uh, uh, in their large populations. And they they had cities that uh, had 40,000, 50,000 people, some people say 100,000. I, I think that's a stretch myself. But they where you have these large centers of people that just doing slash and burn is not productive enough. So they had to rely on other kinds of agriculture to be able to produce enough food to feed the multitudes.
0: Yeah. Is that type of agriculture still practiced in the world today? And if so, where?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There are still people that practice this kind of agriculture in Central America. There are people... That do slash and burn it's called the uh, milpa agriculture in uh in guatemala and belize they do it uh, also in mexico and it, it is still practiced uh and it it occurs when populations are low if there are not a lot of people living in an area then you can you can do that effectively but uh there are a lot of downsides to slash and burn agriculture one thing is that you need a lot of land. And the other thing is that uh, you have problems with erosion, that the soils are very thin. And when you cut down all the forests, then you have uh, water that comes in a rainy season and you get these torrential rainfalls and that causes a lot of uh, erosion. And then so you lose essential nutrients that way and you lose soil. And then also it turns out you lose water uh, recent studies uh, in Brazil have shown that uh, if you clear away the tropical forest, then what happens a lot of times is the water will get into the, uh, into the ground levels and it will seep down into the water table. In the, in the Maya area in Central America, the, the water table is about uh, 100, 200 meters underground which is uh, inaccessible. It was inaccessible to the mind, and even today with pumps, it's hard for people to get down that deep. So that you would lose a lot of water in the hydrologic cycle. And what this means is that there's overall less, uh, less water being cycled through the landscape. And what this causes is a reduction in rainfall overall. So their clearance of 60% of the forest could have contributed to the droughts of the ninth century.
0: And following that, I was thinking that this seems like it would have an adverse impact today with our efforts to combat global warming and, and all the issues that are coming with that. Is that
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, one of the great advantages of studying these ancient cultures is, uh, I mean, they were people. They think like we do in many respects, and they do. They go through sort of the same cycles that we're going through. That the Maya, uh, they realized that slash and burn agriculture uh, caused them to lose soil and reduce productivity, and they responded to that. And they became more sustainable in their agriculture, which we can talk about. And uh, through this sustainability, they were able to feed more people and uh, their society was able to grow and flourish. Some things happened to them that they weren't aware of. Uh, one of the things was they, they painted their buildings with uh, cinnabar, which is uh, mercury sulfide. And cinnabar, when it washes down into the water of their reservoirs, that that meant that they were drinking uh, water that was laced with mercury. And this would have had an adverse effect on their uh, ability to think and make decisions. And this was particularly acute in the areas where the the nobility, where the uh, rulers lived. And so this might have affected their ability to make good decisions. So the Maya could see that some of the things they were doing were not sustainable. There were some other things that they didn't quite understand. And the the difference for us is we know what's happening and we we have a good idea of what the solutions are. It's just a matter of being able to motivate society to make the changes that we need to make.
0: Right. Well, getting back to um, that evolution of the culture there they used other practices as well to help sustain and grow can you talk about some of those other agricultural practices
1: well one of the one of the big things for the maya was they developed a system of reservoirs and what happens in this area it's they have uh, a rainy season and they have a dry season and in the dry season Uh, there's not much water available. And where in the central Maya lowlands, there are no lakes, there are no rivers, and so there's no permanent sources of water. So what they developed was a system of reservoirs so they could capture rainwater from the rainy season and have it to drink during the dry season. And also they would set up uh, agricultural reservoirs so that they could grow crops two times a year instead of just one time. A year and so this would uh, improve their agricultural productivity. They also did things like um, terraces and terraces are very good at, at maintaining soil quality and also retaining moisture and uh, and this is a very productive and sustainable kind of agriculture that they developed. Uh, they had a number of ways that they could uh, uh, retain water. They, they practice ridge and furrow agriculture of all things to try to reduce the effects of erosion. They would uh, plant home gardens that were uh, very, very effective. And so each Maya household would have a, sort of a garden uh, immediately around where they lived. And they would have uh, fruit trees that would provide shade for them. And then, of course, the fruits when the, they uh, became ripe. And uh, also they would have small plots of maize and uh, some root crops and peppers and medicinal plants. And these would be fertilized by what we euphemistically called night soil, that they would uh, run and defecate in their fields, and this would uh, fertilize them. And these areas around their households were very productive. So they had lots of ways of intensifying agriculture that were sustainable and highly productive at the same time.
0: So was most of their uh, agriculture used locally? Was it locally grown and locally used? Or was there a system of transportation and distribution as well that spread it out across the empire?
1: The answer is mostly A, that it was mostly... Uh, people had to produce their own food. They did move food around. We know that. They would trade uh, chocolate seeds or cacao seeds. Uh, There was a trade in dried fish that would come up from the coast. Um, But for the most part, people would have to raise their own food. Each community would have to raise their own food. And part of their problem, or, or the essential part of their problem, is they didn't have good ways of moving things around. They had no draft animals. They did not have the wheel. So the only way to move food around is uh, to carry it on the backs of workers. And uh, say if there was a drought, there was, there was really no way to move food around to sustain uh, 50,000 or 100,000 people on the backs of porters.
0: So there were different economic groups, right? There was a a higher class uh, and a peasant class, something like that. Is that accurate?
1: Yes, and it probably wasn't that clearly defined. There were rulers, and there were people around the rulers who were related to the rulers generally, and there would be people who were uh, priests, uh, people who were scribes. And the scribes and the priests were the only people who knew how to read and write. And so the Maya did have their own writing system. They had books. Uh, They wrote uh, on their walls, and they carved monuments with their writings. Uh, And so we actually do have a history of of the ancient Maya. But most people, probably 95%, 90% of the people, were what we call commoners, and these were people who farmed and uh, produced uh, the surpluses that allow the royalty, the rulers, to survive. And there was also a class of artisans. Uh, for example, the Maya are known for their beautiful ceramics, uh, for their jade carvings, for their stone carvings, for their paintings. So there, there were a lot of artists in the Maya world.
0: So the demise of the Maya people had a lot to do with the drought, and you brought in the idea of the mercury poisoning of, of the waters. Was there anything else that you feel, scientists feel, contributed to that demise of the culture?
1: Well, one of the things that we found in our research was, and uh, this was with a a team of people, it's not just me doing it, but our team, we learned that the the Maya had problems with blue-green algae or cyanobacteria. In particular, they had uh, strains of cyanobacteria like planktothrix and microcystis. And these kinds of blue-green algae produce uh, microcystins, uh, which are deadly toxins, Uh, one drop of microcystin on your tongue will kill you. And so when this got into their reservoirs, they were uh, particularly dangerous. And so the water could not be consumed, and even if you boil it, uh, microcystins are resistant to heat. So even if you boil it, you still can't drink it. And not only that, uh, we see that the, uh, the people who were the rulers, Their reservoirs were the ones that had the infestations of cyanobacteria. And so their water, A, becomes toxic and B, turns green. And so I I often wonder what kind of an effect this might have had on the general populace. Um, And Let's back up a step and think about the Maya and their cosmology and their thinking about their rulers. The ruler's job was to propitiate the gods, to appease the gods and connect with the gods and make sure that the rain comes on time and everything goes well. So you get into a 20-year drought, and the reservoirs right next to where the ruler has his palace. Uh, the water turns green, and it's undrinkable. I mean, what are people going to think under that circumstance? They're not going to say, oh that's just blue-green algae in there and it's causing the water to turn green, they're going to think that this is perhaps a symbol from the gods. And the gods are unhappy with our rulers and uh, compound that with the fact that the rulers have been eating tamales that are laced with mercury for many years. And so their, uh, their thinking may not have been as clear as otherwise it might have been. So all of these factors together would have Disillusion the common people. And when you see there's a drought, there's no food to eat, uh, it looks like the rulers are not doing their jobs. So people uh, voted with their feet. And, uh, and they abandoned these big cities. And it happened fairly quickly, it seems.
0: Over the course of...
1: Uh, it, it happened over the course of a couple of decades, which is... Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, at Tikal, for example, the last dated monument was uh, 869. And uh, by uh, 870, the city was largely abandoned. There was nothing to eat. There, mm. uh, things looked bad. I'm sure many people died as well. But uh, the people who could left and they went to areas that uh, had permanent water sources. There are a few lakes in Guatemala, and you could move to those lakes, and those populations grew. And also there were places in Belize that had permanent rivers, uh, like Lamanae, as uh, is, is a settlement that grew uh, after the Maya collapse. So that's kind of what happened to the Maya. They went to places where there was a permanent water source, and they, they could live there.
0: What is the water source for people in these areas today?
1: Well, it's, that's a very good question. Uh, and surprisingly, one of the water sources uh, is these old reservoirs that the Maya built. And they built these reservoirs, and it was quite a construction. It was like, they, they were sort of like swimming pools. Uh, the subsurface uh, is basically porous limestone or uh, Uh, calcium carbonate or sodium carbonate, and water just goes right through it, so it doesn't hold water very well. So the Maya built these reservoirs, and they lined them uh, with uh, different kinds of plaster or clay so that they would hold water. And a lot of these reservoirs are still there, and uh, in a lot of places, that's how local people get their water, as they use the uh, these little reservoirs. Or, or if they were small, they call them aguadas. Uh, used by the Maya, or that were created by the Maya, and there's still Maya people there, and they use those. They use those little reservoirs. Now, of course, they have pumps and things like that, so they can get down to uh, water underground much better than the Maya could. But still, it's, it's hard uh, to get water out, uh, especially when the water tables are like 200 meters or, say, about 200 yards underground. And also, uh, in a lot of places, water is trucked in. So I get a big water tanker, and they bring in water from other places that have permanent water supplies.
0: I know you talked in one of your papers about environmental DNA analysis, Can you tell us what that is and how you're using it in your research?
1: Well, uh, this is environmental DNA, and this is a new development for archaeology. And the way it started was uh, uh, in my laboratory over at the University of Cincinnati. We had a new scholar who came in, uh, Trinity Hamilton. And she works with uh, ancient rocks that have bacterial DNA in the rocks. And she was extracting DNA from these rocks. And so we got to talking, and I said, well, do you think that you could extract DNA from sediments that we have from this myocyte at Tikal? And she said, well, I think so. Let's give it a try. And, and we did, and sure enough, she was able to extract DNA from the, the sediments that we gave her. One of the things we did at Tikal was that we looked at, in particular, the reservoirs. We wanted to find out what kinds of plants were growing around the reservoirs. So one of the things we learned was that it looked like there was an ancient grove or a sacred grove. And these sacred groves would be places where they would just protect very old trees. And right next to it was a spring, and the springs were very important to the ancient Maya because these were portals to the underworld. And so we have a sacred grove right next to a a sacred portal. And so this was a, a very sacred place. To the ancient mind. And then we also learned uh, about the palace reservoir. And uh, and it turns out that there were all these terraces that faced the reservoir. And uh, so uh, it looks like the, the ruler had planted a sort of a, a park-like uh, situation around the reservoir. So the ruler could sit in his terrace, and he would have uh, a waterfront view, and they would have uh, park-like plants. They would have some palm trees, they would have small uh, forest trees, and they would also have shrubs that would produce beautiful flowers. And so it would have been quite a nice environment for the rulers.
0: This all sounds like it really expands our view of what the Maya culture was like. Is that true?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we have a much better understanding now of what their cities look like. We have some understanding of the built environment because there's still all the cut-stone structures. But we, up until now, we didn't really have a good idea of what kinds of plantings were in the city itself. And oftentimes when you see um, renderings of what the city looked like, it's, it's just sort of without any vegetation uh, or if there is something, it's, it's clearly an afterthought. Like, uh, I saw one that it looked like it was a golf course, like they had, the Maya had built a Tikal in the middle of a golf course. But now we, we understand what kind of trees were there and what, maybe what they were thinking when they uh, planted vegetation around their reservoirs and in their communities.
0: How exciting. I'd like to move on to talking about your research at Lloyd Library. Why was the collection there of interest to
1: you? Uh, What was interesting about the Lloyd Library, I'm I'm an archaeobotanist, or some people say an ethnobotanist, and I want to learn about uh, people of the past and uh, the Lloyd family—they were in, into pharmaceuticals. They were basically a pharmaceutical company, and most of their pharmaceuticals were natural products. And uh, Curtis Lloyd went all over the world, and he collected uh, plants and brought them back. He, he made a herbarium specimen, which I'm very happy to tell you, a lot of those, spe- all those specimens are at the University of Cincinnati herbarium. And he was also an avid photographer, and so putting these elements together, I went to the Lloyd Library and asked them if they had uh, any uh, images of his travels in Central America. And it turns out that uh, he had uh, traveled extensively in Mexico and also in the Caribbean. And so, uh, and these were all glass plates, you know. And so this format is. You know, it's like uh, a foot by a foot. These are huge glass plates. And it must have been very arduous because you'd have to carry these glass plates around with you in the field. And then, of course, it's hot, and it would be really hard to develop those things. But somehow he made this happen. And so they have all these glass plates at the Lloyd Library about his travels throughout the world. And I was focusing mostly on his efforts in uh, Mexico, and it turns out he went to a place called Xochimilco, which is, uh, it's called the Floating Gardens of Mexico. And, and basically what it was, it was sort of the last remnant of Aztec agriculture in the basin of Mexico, where they still uh, practice uh, agriculture by raised fields. And, and the way this works is, you know, if you're in kind of a swampy area, Uh, what you can do is you dig a canal and then you throw it up uh, onto a high place and you sort of make these little islands. And it turns out this is an extraordinarily productive kind of agriculture. And uh, so they would have these raised fields and then they would have the canals and you can grow fish in the canals and the uh, and the little islands are very productive because they've they've got water, that the plants can get their roots down into the water table. and you know it's just something that works very, very well. Uh, and now Sochimilko is uh, rapidly being developed, and it's there's really not much of it left. I've been there myself, and it's it looks very different than in the times of um, Curtis Lloyd. Uh, when he was there, it was, these were just sort of uh, working agricultural fields. Now, if you go there, it's more of a tourist attraction, and it's a place where they grow a lot of flowers.
0: So I think his trip was in 1901, is Yes, that that's right,
1: 1901. Yeah. And uh, they, they have uh, hundreds of, of these plates from him. The resolution is very good. So we see these beautiful pictures of Milko from 1901. And so you really get an idea of what agriculture was like in the basin of Mexico at that time. How rare or unique are those images? I think they're very unique. Uh, I've never seen anything like it before. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess photography didn't come around until like the 1850s. And uh, as I was mentioning to take photography down into uh, a place that was not very, I mean, there was certainly was no electricity or, you know, kind of a remote place, and uh, take pictures is very a very difficult task. And uh, he did it beautifully. He was a great photographer. And so it's very unusual to have those kinds of photographs.
0: It would seem there are a lot of lessons we can learn from the Maya. is your research informing agricultural practices today?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very good question here. The, uh, one of the fundamentals of agriculture everywhere is that you have to preserve soil. And unfortunately, many of our agricultural techniques are based on mining the soil buildup that has acu- accumulated over many thousands of years uh, from the Pleistocene on to the present, so we just keep mining the soil that we have, thinking that it it can be uh, uh, it's an infinite resource, but it's not. It's finite, so we need to conserve our soil better. And many people are trying to do that through organic farming, through hydroponics, and so forth, where well, we try to conserve soil. But we need to do better here because uh, we're on a pathway that is not sustainable in terms of preserving soil, and also in terms of uh, clean air. We, we are uh, making uh, many mistakes, and we can see the mistakes that we're making. We understand what's going on. Unlike the Maya and the Puebloans, they didn't clearly see what was happening, but we do. And so we have a chance to make things better for succeeding or subsequent generations.
0: So much to to think about and be concerned about. Well, this has just been such an enlightening conversation, and I know we could go on, but our time is up. So thank you so much for coming in today and for talking to us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Our guest today has been biologist Dr. David Lentz. Thanks for listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a podcast of the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Produced by Meg Hamrahan, Audio editing, mixing, and original music by Michael G. Ronstadt. Want to learn more about the Lloyd and its collections? You can visit online anytime at lloydlibrary.org.